Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. So here we are looking at the end of one year, the beginning of another. And if there is one thing that's good about adjusting to putting 2017 on every form you fill out and every check you write, if you still write any checks, is that that number gives you a chance to take a breath and think, how could you be a better version of you in 2017? We're going to help you get there over the next hour-ish. We've got Mark Bittman to help you be a more creative cook and eater. Barbara Oakley is going to help you get better at math and science, even if, like me, you still kind of cringe a little bit when you think of your 10th grade chemistry teacher. And we've got Megan Tan to show you what it's like when all that creativity and hard work pay off and the dream job finally comes through. First up, Mark Bittman, who has spent years asking himself, How can we eat better? How can we cook better? How can we get out of whatever sort of rut we're in? He was a food writer and opinion columnist for The New York Times, and he's the author of books on both cooking and the politics of food. His most recent is How to Bake Everything. Mark, thank you for coming into the studio. It's nice to be here. So this has been widely covered and talked about for years, but we seem to be in a kind of inexorable march towards fewer and fewer meals being actually cooked at home. As somebody who has written about how to cook things and made videos about here's how you cook a great salmon and here's how you do this and a chocolate cake and whatever, does it make you sad that, like with all the resources people have, including, you know, reading your books and looking at your videos, um, that's just not the direction we seem to be headed? You know, I'd argue that anecdotally, this is probably just to keep myself from feeling sad. (laughs) But I'd argue that anecdotally people are cooking more now than they were 10 years ago. Um, But I I can't can't give you any evidence of that. I can just say that that's just how it looks to me. But, you know, we had two generations of people grow up not learning in houses where people didn't cook. And that was the, the victory of those who claimed that the food they were selling was more convenient than home-cooked food, microwave food, microwaved food, TV dinners, takeout food, et cetera, et cetera. I meet a lot of people, and I meet a lot of young people, and a lot of them are cooking or want to cook. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oddly, in this era where books don't sell as well as they used to, cookbooks do. Mm-hmm. So someone's buying them and hopefully cooking from them, Look, we as a society don't encourage healthy eating and we don't encourage cooking. That is something that can be fixed. Mm -hmm. It can't be fixed without political power. It can't be fixed without public will. It can be fixed on an individual basis. You can do it. I can do it. Anyone who's listening can do it. But not everybody is going to do that. That's not the way the world works. So if you were in charge, what would you do to encourage more home cooking? Um, you know, maybe even uh, encourage people to eat healthier kind of on a broader level. We saw, obviously, um, Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York try to limit people's soda consumption, but then there was a backlash against that. So how do you go about this? You know, my pie-in-the-sky answer is 
tax soda, tax junk food, tax non-food, um, and use those taxes to subsidize fruits and vegetables for people who can't otherwise afford them. And or when you say, say non-food, you don't mean like um, tax chairs. You mean like food, <laughs> non-food mean, posing as food. But what Michael Pollan calls <laughs> edible food-like substances and I call unidentifiable food-like objects, UFOs. So you would subsidize the broccoli with I, the money I mean, that you I'm got from taxing meat, the you know, soda. I would, I would subsidize things that don't need labels because they're food. You don't need to label broccoli. It's broccoli. It doesn't have <laughs> any it. ingredients. You know? <laughs> so given all of that, we're not making it, you know, we're not making it easy. You know, put aside the person who works two jobs and takes public transportation to work and back. To make it easy for them to eat healthy food, you need a big changes in society at large. But we're not making it easy for people who work one job and drive or don't have that hard a commute and don't have three kids or, you know, have sort of tolerable schedules. We're not making it easy for them to cook or for them to eat well. We're not teaching them how to cook well, how to eat well. You know, they used to teach cooking in schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I grew up, they only taught it to girls, but they taught it. And if they were teaching it now, they would teach it to both girls and boys. So. So your new book um, is about baking, which in some sense I think of in the more labor-intensive category of cooking. I mean, very fun, and you and you can't get a cake any other way besides to bake it, but harder than maybe, you know, a stir-fry or something. So um, why baking? Well, you know, you can get a cake other than by baking it. You can go to Stop and Shop and buy <laughs> The that. most yes. junky cake imaginable for six ninety nine sure. or whatever. Well, first of all, I chose to define baking as much broader than cake baking. So there's a lot of, probably a quarter of the book is savory. Um, and that includes quiches and includes frittatas. It includes tarts, savory tarts. It includes breads, of course, pizza, and so on. So there is all of that. Secondly, I'm a pretty lazy cook myself, so I never ask, and I never ask anyone to cook anything that I wouldn't cook myself. So this stuff is quite simple. And the idea, the idea was to say, look, there's this kind of mythical divide between baking and cooking. People will say things like, I'm sure you've heard this, people will say things like, cooking is an art and baking is a science, and it's completely ridiculous. Both take ingredients and apply heat to those, usually apply heat to those ingredients to cause physical transformations that turn them into something that presumably tastes better and is more nutritious than it did before. That's um, true, but I am not scared to drizzle soy sauce over a, a pan. I am scared to put some amount of baking soda unspecified and just, you know, drizzle there's a, it in. There's a little more measuring in bit. First yeah. of all, I could ask you what you're afraid of, but we won't go there. <laughs> but there's a, you're afraid the after, of doing something. Show part. You're afraid of doing something wrong, but you know, You'll get over that, I suppose. There's there's more measuring in baking, to be sure. But if you can't take a teaspoon and dip it into a box of baking soda and take it out again, you know, you're a sad case. So, I mean, I learned how to cook by reading and executing recipes. Most other people can do that. I'm not a genius. Most other people can do that also. And I've said this so many times that I'm afraid that it's going to come out sounding like a platitude. But... Cooking is like playing tennis. No one expects to go out on a tennis court and hit the ball really well the first time they go out there. 
people somehow think, oh, I should be able to cook without failure when I go in the kitchen because Bobby Flay does it or whoever they've seen on TV does it. But it's not like that. You need practice. You probably can cook well the first time out with a good recipe if you pay attention and you take your time and you prepare yourself. But with practice, it becomes easy and then it becomes second nature. And the same is true of baking. It doesn't mean, for example, that you're going to say, oh, I'm going to bake a Genoise. I'm not going to look up the recipe because I've done it so many times. I don't need to think about it or measure, although there are people who can do that. And you're right. With a stir fry, you come to that stage much, much more quickly. You tend to need recipes longer in baking than you do, or at least in cake baking and cookie baking than you do in stir fry making. But, you know, bread baking is something you can do by wrote by memory in no time flat. I mean, like you know, I can rattle off the proportions right now and, and anyone could go bake a bread. So I just wanted to take this section of cooking and say it's not as hard as you might think. I wanted to apply the, forgive my immodesty, Mark Bittman spin to it, which is to say, you know, you can do it and you should try. How much creativity do you feel like you are able to have? Because I think food, for a lot of people, like, they don't want some newfangled lasagna. They want, like, the lasagna that they remember. But but I also think there is a bit of in each of us that is kind of excited about experimentation. So how creative do you get and how much are you trying to find the chocolate chip cookie that is emblematic of what we all think of when we think chocolate chip cookie? More the latter. Okay. The platonic ideal of lasagna is what I <laughs> the want. The platonic ideal, okay. <laughs> um, I want the lasagna that makes you think this is lasagna. Uh-huh. I don't want the lasagna that says, wow, I never had lasagna like this before. I kind of like it. I mean, that's all right, but that's not me. Hmm. And the same has been true for many, many things. It doesn't mean there's no room for innovation. I think maybe not the best example, but 10 years or so, I came up with a technique for roasting chicken that I thought – this is really the bee's knees. This is really great. And it it's, produces a regular roast chicken, but a really good roast chicken through an unusual technique that I hadn't seen anywhere before. What, I'm going to have to know what that technique yeah, is. Sorry, you have to buy the book. What? No. <laughs> um, it ran as a minimalist column, and it is um, you take a cast iron skillet and you crank the heat in the oven and you leave the cast iron skillet in the oven naked for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes. And then you put the chicken in there thigh side down, and because the thighs come into contact with a very hot surface, they cook much more quickly than the breasts, which are only in contact with Mm. hot air. Interesting. Um, So you sort of solve this age-old problem of the undercooked undercooked thigh and the overcooked breast thing. You have a much better shot at having them Mm. all. And other people have done it, and for all I know, I stole it. I mean, I can't remember, but I... (laughs) I imagine, <laughs> I, in my mind, I invented it. Okay. You know, maybe it's just a delusion. That's an innovation, but it's an innovation that produces a kind of standard Right. Recipe. You're looking for the perfect chicken, even if that's not something people have ever had before. Well, also, even if it's a method that people haven't used before. But, the, right. you know, the problem is five years let go by and the editor says to this is one of the reasons that I'm not writing for newspapers anymore. The editor says to you got any new way of roasting a chicken? And the answer is, no, I did really a great thing five years ago. Can I have a few more years off on this one? You know, and that's, you know, the job of journalism is to constantly churn it out and you need to come up with something new. But I think the web, in a way, much like books, has made it so that things 
stay green longer. And I don't need to redo this mm -hmm. chicken recipe. You can mm -hmm. find it. It's in mm -hmm. How to Cook Everything. It's online under Mark Bittman, The Minimalist. It's out there. You can Google it, Mark Bittman's Roast Chicken. But I don't want to do it again. Right. <laughs> I did it. A last question for you, which is this. When you look, you, you've spent so much time sort of thinking about the trends in how we cook, how we eat. Have you ever thought about, boy, 10, 20 years down the line, what all these sort of trends are converging on, how our cooking and eating is going to look different uh, in a couple decades? You know, I would have answered this differently a month ago, but I don't know what we're looking at right now, and, and I'm nervous about it. Um, I think food's a very important thing. I think food can be an agent for change. I even think that cooking can be an agent for change, and I'm happy that I've been talking about that. But I do think that um, it's increasingly food like climate change, and it's not unlike climate change as an issue, are both going to have to be seen as part of a larger struggle and part of bigger issues. And the, the real question is how do humans want to survive? What do we want? Or do humans want to survive? Or are humans destined to survive? And what do we want society to look like 20 years from now? Determining what food looks like will be part of that struggle. But I think more important, what food looks like will be determined by how that struggle goes. I mean, I'm, I'm scared about this. The threats of industrial agriculture, both in terms of climate change and in terms of other environmental damage and public health, are very, very real. And the turning back point, and as everybody knows, everybody who reads knows that the turning back point of climate change is, is around the corner, um, is close enough so that if we're caught up in other struggles for the next few years and we're not making progress on climate change, on changing the way we do agriculture, it may well be too late. So, you know, I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but, but I am scared. And I think, um, you know, I'd rather be candid than all chipper and cheery and, hey, happy holidays kind of thing. Mark Bittman is a former food columnist for The New York Times. His most recent book is How to Bake Everything. He's also author of A Bone to Pick. Mark Bittman, thank you so much. It was great. Thank you, Kara. If you're wondering, like I was, what Mark Bittman would bring to your house if he came over for the holidays, he said he'd go with potato nick which his grandmother used to make. It's like a big, huge, ginormous potato latke. And we've got the recipe for you at our website, innovationhub.org. And I asked him from his most recent cookbook, what's one of your favorite recipes? Here's what he said. This is an accidentally gluten-free recipe, which is chocolate almond cookies. And it's egg whites, ground almonds, cocoa powder, sugar. And they're black. I mean, they're really a great mm. color. And they have that sort of crinkled, ragged macaroon surface and that kind of chewy, meringue, macaroony interior with a crackly kind of crust. They are. I don't like favorites. Usually when people ask me this question, I'm like, oh, come on. It's like a thousand recipes. I don't have two favorites. But that, that cookie is really... Because I didn't know it before I started the book, it's not like, oh, my chocolate chip cookie recipe is great, which it is, but this is like new.
Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.